Heavenly Father, open our minds that we might see you, open our hearts, increase our love for you, strengthen our wills to follow. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, what a week. What a week we have had. Here we are starting a new term in our life as the United States of America. Many people are not feeling very united, so how do we respond this Sunday morning, on this first Sunday after the inauguration? It was a very religious ceremony, and our new president took the oath of office, not on one, but two Bibles. You probably know all this. Bible given to him by his mother in the Presbyterian Church Sunday School, also on the Bible used when Abraham Lincoln was sworn in, which was the same Bible used uh, by President Obama. He had prayers in St. John's Episcopal Church before the inauguration, and apparently a new record was sent for the number of prayers in the inauguration. There were six or seven, and uh, that seemed to set a precedent. Yesterday, the president attended a presidential national prayer service at the Cathedral Church of St. Peter and St. Paul, otherwise known as the National Cathedral. Did you know its technical name is the Cathedral of St. Paul and St. Peter for the city of Washington and D.C.? Interesting that the inauguration, January 20th, always falls between January 18th, the confession of St. Peter, and January 25th, the conversion of St. Paul, and that that's the name of the cathedral. These two celebrations make us think about who Jesus is. In Peter's case, Jesus poses the question to him and the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it was Paul himself who directly asks Jesus, who are you, Lord? Good questions for us to have to pause and say, who do I think that he is? And to ask Jesus, who are you? For Christians, it's at the heart of our faith who Jesus is. Was he, as some think, merely an itinerant preacher of good morals and character? Or the Lord God Almighty himself come into our midst that he might establish his kingdom? Getting that right, who God is, who Jesus is, helps us to understand who we are and who we are in relationship to each other, especially to those who might be different or see things differently. How do we be the United States of America? Where do we find the strength, the motivation, the grace, the wisdom? How would Jesus help have us live out this challenge. The scriptures today are very appropriate to our situation. I, I invite you to turn to your bulletin, open it up, look at the passages in there. Uh, beginning with, I'm going to just go through them briefly. Uh, beginning with the prophet Isaiah, who talks about gloom and anguish and deep darkness, but also of a great light shining, a light to bring freedom and joy to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Did you know that George Washington, um, I was going over with the kids at school, different scripture passages the previous presidents have used at their inauguration, but it looks like George Washington 
had his Bible open kind of randomly and uh, read about Zebulun and Naphtali for some reason. Some today think of the past eight years as a great darkness and the promise of a new light shining in our land is very exciting. Others feel that there is a great darkness about to descend upon the land and are looking for some light to bring them hope. Let's move on to 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul appeals to the believers in Christ to get along with each other. He's writing to a church, a group of believers, noted for their fractiousness. Get over your divisions. Some say, I support Paul. Some say, I support Cephas, another word for Peter. So the good old church had party strife even back then. And you would maybe expect it in the world, but we do not expect it in the church. And the church is called to something more. This is wrong. The focus is wrong. It's about Jesus. It's Jesus who matters. Do you support him? Do you allow him to bring you together, even across great divides of separation? And Paul says, I know it sounds like foolishness. How could this person who ended up on a cross bring any kind of power to me to help my country get along with each other? And Paul says, but in it you will find the power of God. Do you find this power in your faith? The power to listen and to hear those of different perspectives and opinions? The power to take a breath and just listen rather than while the other person's speaking, crafting your own rebuttal in your head? The power to reach across divides of opinion, the power to love. And then we come to the psalm. A wonderful reminder of who really is in charge. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? A declaration of faith in him who is our light. A call to be courageous and strong and determined. In the psalm in verse 5, in verse 6, it says, I will offer... In his tents, sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And I think our gathering together here today and singing a song together of our faith in God is a great testimony, a great witness. We've come from different backgrounds and perspectives. There's things we agree on and things we don't agree on. But today, the Lord's Day, we will come together, join our voices and sing of him who is in charge and who loves us. Sing to him who sits on the throne, and this will be a witness to our crazy world. And the psalm ends, we don't have the whole psalm in the bulletin, wait for the Lord, be strong, take, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. And then we got move on to the gospel passage in Matthew. It's very interesting, Matthew's passage we have this morning, talking again about Peter, let me just give you a bit of a build-up to where we are in this, this here passage. In chapter 1, then, we inter he introduces the Messiah and his connection to God's faithful people in the genealogy and his relationship to Joseph and Mary, their faithfulness. In chapter 2, people from another land, foreigners, come and ask, where's the king of the Jews? Of Herod the king. This is a confrontation, and there's fear and animosity. 
It's interesting that when the wise men, when Matthew records the wise men saying, where's the king of the Jews? He does not use that title of Jesus anymore in the gospel until Jesus is hanging on the cross. And the Romans put that sign above him on the cross. So from a baby to the end on the cross, the king of the Jews. Although the description's not used, of course, Jesus' preaching is centered around establishing a kingdom. In chapter 3, Jesus is baptized, even though John wonders why in the world he would come for baptism. But I think it's a deep identification with humanity, even in the midst of its sinfulness. And at that point, a voice from heaven, almost like an inauguration, comes down. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So then he goes from that to chapter 4 to begin his ministry. And the first thing that happens is he's confronted with Satan with three temptations to distract him from his mission. Jesus resists those temptations. And now we come to our passage this morning. And we see that John is arrested and Jesus, it says, withdraws to Galilee. And he's about to turn, having turned from the temptation to follow Satan's ways, he comes to these lowly fishermen and says, will you follow my way? Come and follow me. So let's just look in in verses 12 to 16. Jesus steps into the situation. Now I think the word that they've translated withdrew to Galilee gives the wrong impression. He was in the south where the sophisticated power brokers were. And he decided to leave and go to Galilee. Now, Galilee was a big place. It was very fertile and it supported a large population. So he leaves the centers of powers and goes to a very populated place that had been ruled by uh, pagans for many hundreds of years, influenced with Greek language, Roman laws, uh, all kinds of influences on them. He goes, I suggest, not withdrawing from the battle, but into the very fray. The historian Josephus says that the population was volatile and eager for change. They were fond of innovation and always ready for sedition. They were tough and courageous, but despised by the more sophisticated population around Jerusalem. And the ancient trade routes went straight through Galilee. Jesus didn't withdraw. He stepped into the middle of it. Are we ready to do the same? I hope church for us is not a withdrawal. I sometimes wish that that people could come to church with this sense of anticipation. And I know we're a liturgical church. You you pretty much know what's going to happen and what words are going to be said. Wouldn't it be wonderful you walked in and say, what's going to happen today? But more than that... I wish that we would leave this, having been fed by God's word and singing songs of praise, that when we go out those doors, we would say, what's God going to do with us now? What will he do this week? Who will I meet? Who will I talk to? And he comes and he calls them to be, follow me, to be fishers of men. He begins in verse 17, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the same thing that John has been talking about. He's just stepping into the breach now that, and where did it land John, that message? Well, of course, it landed him in prison. But Jesus comes along now and continues the mission. He calls out to Peter and Andrew, follow me. Now, what's it mean to follow him? Were they just supposed to follow along and watch what he did? That's what I would have liked to have done. 
or were, were they meant to follow and do what Jesus did and to be like Jesus, to use him as an example? Follow his example of love for all, of speaking boldly to the powers, of profound humility, the example of giving himself for others. And then he went, it's verse 23, ends up by saying four things. Jesus went throughout Galilee. He didn't stay in one place. He didn't surround himself with protection, but kept going out amongst this people. He was teaching them in their synagogues. I think teaching gets a, a low uh, approval rating these days. We like to, to intrigue and titillate, and we need to be teaching the word of God, the doctrines of our faith. Someone suggested that we live in a post-truth society. That if we can say something, whatever, how outrageous it is, if we say it loud enough and long enough and surround ourselves with people who agree with us, it becomes the truth. And if we who claim to have the truth are not willing to engage that in conversation, then everyone ends up having their own truth. I've just come from the presentation on human trafficking uh, in the FAC, so it's been kind of hard to transition into this sermon. Um, but the truth that there is atrocious evil happening in our city, where Houston is the number one center for human and sex trafficking, and that there are people in positions of power who are standing in the way of things happening to clean it up, that our sons and daughters are being taken, and we feel helpless. We need to speak the truth. There is a demand for it because we have sinful hearts. We have lust in our hearts, and we need to acknowledge it. So Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom. The next thing, he proclaims the good news. Well, the church must resist the temptation to get dragged into politics it almost res must resist the temptation to retreat into a cozy tower, thinking we have nothing to say to the situation. We must remember that we are called to proclaim a kingdom. We do not have the expertise as a church to pronounce on policies, but as Archbishop Temple, our Archbishop in the Second World War, reminded us, we do have an obligation to speak prophetically about principles. If our policies are hurting people, they must stop. It is not our job to suggest new policies as the church, but we must stand up for those who get hurt. And the example, of course, is human trafficking. Uh, it was recorded in there, so if you'd like to see, it's very worth hearing. A man came and spoke about how his own daughter in Spring Valley was taken. He did get her back, so it's got a good ending. Where's my mandate? So it goes on, the final phrase is, he went about curing every disease and sickness. The church has a pretty good record of curing physical illness. We've gone places and started hospitals, etc. I don't think we have any faith-based hospitals left, but at one point, the, the hospitals by and large were started by churches. But maybe we're not so good at curing social ills or national fracture. In a few moments, we'll, uh, we'll share the peace. And I, I want to see that as related to our mandate to, to do something, to, that, that we have to get involved. 
And why? Here's why, I think. Do you remember when they first started sharing the peace, like 30 years ago? It was really awkward, you know, because we used to just say, the peace of the Lord be with you and also with you. And, and then you just kind of went on. And then they, they uh, introduced this. Put your hand up if you remember this. <laughs> yeah, you do. Okay. So it was like, people, oh, just interrupting. It feels like the seventh inning stretch. So my favorite story is my last parish. There was somebody, there was a, a curmudgeonly uh, railway lawyer. He worked for Canadian National Railway. He hated this so much. Um, but he did it at, in our church. But he was traveling across the country. He's in Calgary. So he's in church. He sees this coming. And he says, I hate this. You know what? I'm a visitor here. Nobody knows me. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to cross my arms. I just say it. And that's it. So the priest said, the peace of the Lord be always with you. Everybody said, and also with you. And they started shaking hands. And the fellow sitting in front of him turned and said, I hate this, don't you? He said, yes, I do. My name's Forrest. <laughs> the peace is integrally related to the, our confession and absolution. We come before God in this part of our service and say, I do not deserve your love. The New Testament describes me as a rebel and an enemy. I have did nothing to deserve your love. Quite the contrary, I deserve your judgment. And yet, I remember that you died for me. You offered to me salvation and forgiveness. And you invite me to come around my table. So if I do receive that love, that forgiveness, that salvation, then I must share the peace with others. And so the peace becomes sort of an embodiment of what we must do. And Jesus doesn't, ju I don't think he's just pleased when we shake hands with our family and our friends and the people we like, the person I'd like to get to know back there. How about sharing it and offering it to those we don't agree with? Those who we think are doing such harm to our country. Those who are opposed to us. Those who we might even consider enemies. Will the cross of Christ give us strength to do that. And unfortunately in our church, we start omitting the confession, but we keep having the peace. It makes no sense to me. The peace that I share with you and you share with me flows from the peace that God shares with me, and I must share it. I do not have an option. We do not have an option. The peace dares us to move beyond ourselves, our interests, our concerns, our priorities, and create Christ-like community with others. It's a practicing of a communal way of life framed by Christ's peace. Let us remember then who we are and whose we are. We will share a peace that comes from him, and we are called to share that with everybody. We will say fervent prayers for our nation. We will determine with all of our hearts to follow him. In hope and faith and confidence, we will join our voices together in songs of praise and thanksgiving. And in so doing, we will bear witness to a divine unity that may challenge and invite our nation to indeed be the United States of America, one nation under God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.